0: Paul Schaefer is one of the most recognized talk show band leaders in television history. Whether you remember him as an original cast member of Saturday Night Live, or as the musical band leader and sidekick for David Letterman, Paul's been a regular on late night television for more than 40 years. He's a successful musician, actor, radio host, philanthropist and author. And today, Paul joins us from his home in Manhattan for an intimate look at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's been doing since leaving late night television.
1: There he is. Hi, hey, Paul. We got you
2: sideways somehow. What happened? Well, you—all of a sudden—you're sideways. There yeah. we go. I can fix it easy. That's better. <laughs> yes. Well, I've I've always been used to being a little skewed. <laughs> anyway. How you doing, Paul? I'm great. Nice to see all you guys out in uh, Victoria, BC. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So uh,
1: one thing I want <clears throat> to I want to say first right off the you know what always blew my mind about you was the fact that you're like a walking musical anthology. Like well, I used to I used to subscribe to um, that show you had. What was it called? This Day in Rock or something? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, and because every day there was like a tidbit of information that would come through my computer from you, and that was way before I ever met you. But and then when I when I met you, and of course I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, you were originally from Thunder Bay, well, Fort William, I guess, originally. That's it, correct. Before yes. Port Arthur and Fort William exactly. became one town. Yes. And so we had, and all of a sudden, not only are you like a walking anthology of everything pop, you also knew
2: all the bands in Sault Ste. Marie. Like, well, I, there was a connection to the Sioux yeah. and Thunder Bay. <clears throat> and I, I guess the main connection was uh, a radio announcer and DJ named, who uh, named Dick Peplo, but uh, but by the time he um, got to Thunder Bay, he was known as Dick Wilson. Okay. Uh, he, proud uh, Sioux native. Is that and, right? Yeah. And you know, he was, well, I, the, I, he was around when I was 17 seventeen-ish. He he might know only have been twenty himself, you know, but he was seemed like a. A huge deal, and also promoted shows in town, in the in the hockey arena, where they would put plywood down on the ice and erect a stage. Yeah. I'm sure you ran into many of those. Oh, oh many. Yeah. And um, wow. you know, so through Dick Wilson, uh, we we had a regular Saturday night gig, and I don't know. I guess that maybe that was the beginning of it. But the, the bands like the A Men, yeah, yeah. were legendary. Yeah,
1: well, they, um, they, they actually had a on, song on the radio or two.
2: Yes, yes. And then, of course, the other big connection was uh, the Vendettas. Vendettas, a, a Sioux band starring Keith Mackay. Yeah. Lead vocals. But With Kensington Market. Yeah, who went on to do Kensington Market right. after he left uh, Thunder Bay, but spent a lot of time in Thunder Bay with a band of mostly guys from the Sioux Bob Yeomans. Oh, yeah, of course. I didn't know you knew him. Well, because he was playing drums at that time. A great drummer with Keith MacKay and this band, The Vendettas. I'm and then I guess that. Bob Yeoman, I guess he got together with the guy, Timmy, I can't remember his last name, from the, from the A-man. Uh, and they had a band. This guy was, you know, I was probably too young to say hello to him when he was in town, but met him much later when I was in Toronto in school. I went to University of Toronto and then... Afterwards, just started playing around town, you know, gigs, and ran into Bob Yeomans in a band, in a pickup band somewhere, and we had all this in common. That's so, kind of- you know, the, le- the legend grows, but this band, The Vendettas, with another legendary guy, Alex DeRue, who was also in Kensington Market on bass, right. uh, no longer with us, but, you know, wise beyond his years, especially when it came to R&B, and uh, the kind of music that I was getting into, these guys turned me on to R&B, really. We're playing songs like Midnight Hour and and Hold On, I'm Coming, when they really hadn't reached the radio. You know, Dick Wilson wasn't playing it on on the radio yet. Yeah. But we learned this from The Vendettas. Uh, amazing. Well, uh, uh, what's his name? Gene
1: Martinick from the Kessner Market went on to have quite a producing career.
2: Yes, and now, you know, Gene played... Godspell for me in Toronto, the Toronto Company, 1972. This is this company that a lot of us guys and, and gals talk about because uh, we're all still friends. But going way back to 72, Martin Short, yeah, and, and Gilda, Gilda, and yeah, and Andrea yeah. Martin, yeah. Eugene Levy, yeah, and uh, Victor Garber. All these people, you know, and on, on guitar, Gene Martinick,
0: because really? he had played
2: Hair, because he had played the Hair. After Kensington Market was over, he was a guitarist in the hair of the Broadway show when it played Toronto. And I was brand new to this. You know, I thought, well, I'll hire Gene Martinick, seems to be interested, and he'll know what he's doing because I certainly don't know. So (laughs) he he became my guitar player, and we, you know, we played together for a year, solid year. And yes, and of course, he also produced Bruce Coburn. Oh! Uh. Gene Martinick, yes, that's right. I, but I he was just getting that. started. Yes, um, uh, Edward Bear, yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah. last song and their first. Can you name their first record? Masquerade. Yeah, I can't. Masquerade. I, can't, I don't know Masquerade, but what about yeah. you? You, me, and Mexico. Oh, you, you and me down in Mexico.
1: You're right. That ah. was first. It was okay. that one, and then and then Masquerade. Yeah, it was. It was like the whole song was like this story of the one girl. It's yeah, like it's, oh, going oh, me down Mexico, masquerade. Uh, oh, that's interesting! I, I, every song was a lyric about this one girl, and then it's the last song I'll ever write for you, and, it's, and it was. Yeah. It's weird. I got
2: to know. I got to know those guys, Edward Bear. They were around when I was at U of T, and my good friend, dear uh, Dave Smythe, still my uh, one of my best friends, was a roadie for them in Toronto. Is that right? And they were interesting thing about them. I can remember I can give you the personnel. They were a trio. Daddy Marks, blues guitarist, extraordinary, you know. Larry Mm -hmm. Evoy was the name of the singer drummer, right? Who wrote the songs, I think. And then Paul Weldon, an architect who played keyboard. And and left-hand bass. Left hand bass and designed album covers too, I think, because he was an architect. But they they were a blues. Somehow they managed to be a blues band, except when they, on record they did the last song, they, but, they in, put, but they live play, they, in concert they, they, down 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 no, down, down. You know, they, I woke up this morning, people, and then on record it's the last song. I don't know how they yeah. pulled that off, but they
1: did. Well, they played by high school as that trio. Oh yeah, uh, yeah! It
2: was amazing.
1: I mean, that that was that was just after Masquerade. So you and me down in Mexico had hit, and Masquerade, and they they hadn't hit the stadiums yet. But they were either that or they were doing both. You know how it is. You you know when you when you're you a kid. to do you, both. Can, you must retain your humility. <laughs> exactly. We got to fill in the gaps, right? So yeah. they might not have had a, a gig on the way to Thunder Bay, so they stopped in at a high school to make some money.
2: You know. Well, that's exactly why we got to see the Guess Who so much in Thunder Bay, yeah, because at, at Fort William, because the, it was right next to Winnipeg, you know. And did they it, play
1: there almost every New Year's or no, just before Christmas? I think.
2: That's the story. Yes, and I would be at all of those gigs. And they, uh, there's the story that Randy likes to tell of course is that they would be broke, which they were all the time, because their gigs were like five hundred bucks yeah. at that time for the four of them. But so coming home for Christmas, they would stop off, play Thunder Bay, and they'd have five hundred bucks to buy Christmas presents for the folks back in Winnipeg. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we benefited because we uh, got to see them so much. And, And this is when, before they had their own songs, when they were a cover band and the most wonderful cover band you could possibly imagine.
1: Well, I have an album that Randy laid on me of them doing all their covers from the old Let's Go Music Hop days. Right. And there's, it's, it's funny because they're doing White Room and it's letter perfect, except they didn't understand the 5-4. So, Oh, okay. They did it in 4-4. Four four. They went, But the song was letter perfect, except for that.
2: That's pretty funny. It reminds me of my band uh, in, back in Thunder Bay, and we learned, um, you know, dee, Do Do sunshine of your love. Right. Um, and But the drummer, still a great friend of mine, and really taught me the essence of hip, this right. guy back in Thunder Bay. I used to say I would check, even after I got to uh, Toronto, even after I got to New York, Rick Lazar, now okay. a percussionist in Toronto, but he, I would check in with him to see what was happening up in... Thunder Bay because that's how tuned in he was before the internet but right. he was too hip to play you know the way they played that beat which was the accent the snare on one and three right instead of two and four he refused and played it on two and four and of course now he realizes that the one and three thing was the whole the whole oh, song was, really yeah, you
1: know? I want to go back to to um, to your days of Fort William and stuff so were your parents yeah. musical? They were very
2: musical. Um, both of them. My father was a lawyer in Thunder Bay, uh, not a musician by any means and didn't play an instrument. Uh, but he had a very cool taste in music and loved the great jazz vocalists. Um, and on Sunday, you know, when he could relax, he, he would put on his records of Sarah Vaughan and Sinatra and, um, and Ray Charles, yeah. In other words, my, my dad hipped me to Ray Charles, you know, pretty good. Right. Um, I don't know, he loved the great vocalists, and Ray, of course, he had discovered him as one of them. And he loved Sam Cooke, too. He sort of followed the rock and roll that far. Uh, and my mother was, could play the piano, used to play when I was an infant. I have this recollection of being underneath the piano, wow. you know, while she was playing and then got me playing uh, lessons, piano lessons at age six. And then she stopped, then she never played again. Wait, uh, uh, Charles, enough. Charles,
1: can you pull up a picture? I got a picture of of, uh, uh, of Paul really young at the piano, I believe. I'd like to get him to comment on it.
2: And what's the comment? You know, you can see exactly. I wish I knew what the piece was, but you <laughs> can only imagine. There. Oh, I don't know exactly. I, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I started lessons at six. So I, I could have been, I don't know, 10 or, or eight or something. But okay. I certainly played the, you know, the Royal Conservatory music program. And uh, yeah, as you may remember, they they sent examiners up there to, once a year to examine all the kids and you'd get grade eight and grade, you know, I had all that kind of musical training. And then I entered the Kiwanis music festivals as a kid. Right. And maybe that was from one of those.
1: Okay. And uh, so how far did you get in your grades?
2: for music grade, like- grade eight in p- grade eight piano and then grade two theory and grade three harmony. And I think that, you know, you could get a call, a credit in grade 13, which they had at that time. Right. 13. Yeah. This is how I've, I I've heard of dating yourself, but this is ridiculous. Oh no. I, anyway. Well, I, so I, I got I, a credit, you know, for, for some reason. And that's what, that's how far I got. Yeah. there was um, still grade 13 for me. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, there you go. I
1: never made it that far. I quit to go on the road.
2: Who were you with at that time?
1: Well, there was a, uh, there was a band out of Sault Ste. Marie. It was sort of the cream of the crop, but everybody was older than me. So as, as each one graduated, they would leave. Well, the drummer left, went to Toronto, ended okay. up doing, getting a, a backup band with the Fabulous Platters. Wow, great. Then touring around, played Guam, that sort of thing. He came back the next year and got Jeff Neal, who's now with Streetheart members of okay, the you know, yeah. Canadian, Canadian band, Street Heart. And Clearly, so it brought brought, got him. We're all from the same high school. And then Jeff, so Jeff leaves to go out in that same band, comes back and says, I want to get rid of these other two guys. I want you and Mike Sicoli to play. And so we formed this band, Shama, and went out on the road and that, that became my career. That band was so focused on hard work and discipline. And it was just wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm a lucky guy. I'm a lucky guy. because and,
2: and still doing it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Still yeah. in show business, yes. Yeah, and doing, talk,
1: doing talk about show business. How, what got you into it? Like, what was the turning point for you from going to conservatory to uh, being like a performer?
2: Yes, well, you know, again, the conservatory was just piano lessons at home right. with, their, with the conservatory books, you know, their, and their examiner and stuff. But, well, when I went to U of T, I, I t- took sociology. Uh, and, and that's what you take when you don't know what the hell you're going to do. with your life, and I really didn't. I thought, you know, certainly, uh, you know, my dad uh, was a lawyer and I I thought of that, but wow, I didn't, you know, man, he works hard. Um, And then I thought, you know, maybe I would be some kind of professor So I didn't know, but all I knew was I was exhausted and depressed all the time in, in college, first year there. I've learned to say college, you know, down here in the States, but it was the University of Toronto. Right. Uh, I, if I had a nine o'clock class, I'd be back in bed at 1030. Oh, I got to go back to, you know, I don't didn't know what was wrong until I started playing a little bit on the side uh, with a jazz and avant-garde jazz player named C.G. Munoz. He was in Toronto at the time, really great, a New Yorker. Great guitar player.
1: You, are you familiar with him? I, I know the name. I, I don't okay. know him as well as Lenny Bro, but I'm, I, I know... Yes, yeah. Well, boy, and I, I,
2: through him, I had the pleasure of meeting Lenny Bro at that time and actually jamming with Lenny at one point. But this uh, guy was cosmic like Lenny, and I'm still close to him and still make records and stuff with him. M- Munoz. Uh, when I started playing with him, first I started learning, you know, stuff about the kind of music that he played, avant-garde, First standard, kind of started me on jazz standards. I learned how to play all those songs my my dad used to play, you know, by Della Reese and stuff. And then then now let's just go out, basically, you know. And I followed him into those outer musical reaches. And I started to cheer up. I didn't have to sleep anymore. And it was so clear. I got to try this. I really got to try music, you know. That was the turning point. You're talking oh, yeah. about your dad with jazz and stuff like that. And the
1: first thing I flashed on, and when I listen to these albums, to this day, I can't get over the quality of the vocal sound, and I don't know how they did it. But Nat King Cole's albums are just wow. unbelievably good. Mona Lisa, men had named you. You're so like the lady with the mystic smile. His vocal sound is so present, you know? Yeah. I don't know what microphones they use. It's this old tube compressors and preamps and all that stuff. That's tube right. And
2: they, oh, they still my got God. I'm in Capitol. I think, you know, he recorded in the Capitol building, I think, in L.A. Uh, doing acoustic music, though, you know, and that's what they did at that time. Yeah. It sure helps keep things clean and clear. Yeah, Once you true. start working with electric guitars, I, as you know, you know, yeah, and the way they play the drums now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's, it involves much more. Oh, t- talk about that! I, uh, something I
1: flashed on Sid McGuinness, when he was in the original world's most dangerous band with you on Letterman. Yeah, you know, because he was with you after Hyman Bullock left. Correct. That's right, Hiram Bullock. Exactly. Uh, Hiram Bullock was so great too. So Sid McGuinness, now all of a sudden when you went over to CBS and you had the CBS orchestra with the horns and all that stuff, he started wearing headphones. Was it it directly because the band was so big or what was it? I'll tell you
2: exactly what it was. Um, We went to ear monitors, in-ear monitors when we switched to CBS. Okay. Uh, Because it was, you know, they had been invented all, all of a sudden. Right. And they were presented to me as a way what the producers wanted to clean up the stage. You won't have to have wedges. You know, we don't want. Cor- so we all resisted it. But once we started using it, using them, we found they were fantastic for so many reasons. One, uh, you don't have to, you know, tr- blast yourself up by trying to get your wedge louder than the, than the next guy's wedge. You know, so you're not hearing his man. But two, I could have, and the band was bigger, so I couldn't just whisper over to Anton, you know, we're gonna do Louis Louis, you know. Now yeah. Anton way over there. So I could have a mic, which only was heard by the other musicians. Right. And I could talk into that and and know, and everybody would know, you know, we're gonna do Louis Louis, Kiev A, you know, and Felicia sometimes a little younger what's that, you know, right, <laughs> just, right. just three chords, maybe, you know, I'm saying yeah. all this in the, in the mic, yeah. but Sid could not work with his amplifier as a guitarist. He needed access to his amp. He could not, because the, the ears can cut off your, you know, your acoustic vibe. Right. right. He didn't want to have, you know, he just needed to be able to turn around if he wants feedback, get right down. Like Hendrix and you know used to and, and do his thing and he's his compromise was I'll wear Walkman headphones or whatever they were called at that time, iPod headphones, and right. I'll be able to hear your voice, but I gotta work with the band acoustically. Ah. And so so that way he
1: could hear my cues. Okay, so he, so now when you were okay, so let's go back to the NBC. So you didn't have in earbuds at those times. How were you getting your cues from the production
2: room? Um I tried using a, what they called a, what it was an IFB, whatever that stands for, to hear the booth, to hear the assistant director. Uh, it was just confusing. I, could, I would just take it out. Okay. And I just learned to look at the stage manager and basically take my cues from, from Letterman anyway. Right. But, you know, they got used to, Paul doesn't have an IFB, you know, so I would just say, say you cue me, you cue me, you know, and then I just worked that way. Cause that and it, show, was, it was way better. Yeah, it was way because you had to be spontaneous. Yeah, that show—that's that, the thing. That show was yeah.
1: unbelievable. And you being such, uh, like, you absorb so much musically. I mean, uh, uh, like I said, you're walking anthology. And now you're in a situation between well, your Saturday Night Live days, Saturday Night Live days, on top of it. But then on
2: Letterman, you're getting to play with every one of your heroes. It was a dream come true, and. I didn't, certainly didn't take it for granted, you know. It was fantastic. I don't know how it happened, but I was ideally positioned. And having done Saturday Night Live, which was certainly an R&B kind of band, kind of more contemporary than you were used to seeing on TV, but still uh, written charts, five-piece horns. Once you have five horns, you know you're going to have charts and stuff. And I just knew going in, this is going to be every day. I can't have to go home and and write charts or, you know, every night, what am I going to do? And I figured out, let me just play the stuff I love. And I blame it a little bit on the Guess Who coming to Fort William, too, because, as I say, they would knock me out with not a single song of their own, even Shaken All Over was a cover. Right. You know, but I didn't care, you know, and this was sort of my... Ken, I just did that. I said, let's play all you know, our Midnight Hour, like Keith Bacay, all yeah. our favorite stuff, and then the and and then the other guys in the band, well, let's play my favorite stuff. You know, Steve Jordan happened to be a big Beatles fan, right? We, so start playing Beatles, and Hiram knew everything. Yeah, Crosby, Stills, and Nat, You know, he knew he had so many influences. So also, you know, I, the four-piece band was, of course, my favorite. It was the most flexible. Yeah, I, I, I just loved, had three guys who
1: knew all the songs I knew. I loved it. I loved your theme song on that B3. I mean, I, yeah. the whole, the horn thing when at first, when you first went to CBS and it was the big horn, it was like, it was impressive, but I still missed that intimate B3 doing the melody. Yeah. You know?
2: Well, you see, I, but I, I was asked to, you got to have a bigger band. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't care how big, you know, how, how I accomplished it. Just want a bigger, this is a bigger show. You can't have an intimate four-piece thing they they impressed upon him. as opposed to at the beginning when, I don't know if you read any of those Late Show Wars books, but I, apparently Johnny Carson, when when Letterman was first coming on and Carson controlled the time slot after him, yeah. he said, you know, well, you can't have the same guests I have. You know, certain people uh, you got to lay out, you can't book my favorite, you know, whoever, Buddy Hackett, whatever. Right. Have your own guests. And that led to Letterman getting his own crazy guests, right. more human interest people, Brother Theodore and those crazy people he used to have. Yeah. And then they said, oh, and you can't have a big, you can only have four people in the band because Cause we have a big band. We don't want, it can't look like our show. Yeah. And perfect for me. That was how my number of guys I had at Thunder Bay. You know, I knew exactly what to do. And Will Lee was with you the whole time. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, he, he and I, you know, I, I, um, I got to New York in in 1974, and I was doing Broadway, but through various things, I started working in the studios pretty quickly, and that's really where I wanted to be. At that time, the coolest thing, you know, and we all knew at that time about the, the muscle shoals, rhythm section, and stuff like that, and these studio musician concept of guys who They play everything, you know, they, in the morning, they don't even know what they're gonna get during the day. And I started, I was on my way to becoming that until, you know, computers and stuff took over. But Will was a couple of years ahead of me. He was always at the top. And the first date we played together in the studio, a disco date, we just hit it off. Mm -hmm. And we were, we've been best friends ever since. Didn't you guys work on Barry Manilow together too? Yes, exactly. He had been already working for Barry, you know, at the beginning of Barry's days, because and he worked for Bette Midler when, Bette, when Barry played for Bette. Ooh, and then wow. there was a there was a connection, a, a, a producer named Ron Dante, who was oh, yeah. producing Barry. Yeah. And I met Ron Dante through another t- Don Kirshner, who okay. uh, was at that time the you know legendary publisher. Yeah. On the Brill Building days, and then he had his own show. Anyway, one thing led to another, and Barry uh, used me on a couple of records as a second keyboard. And it was, you know, terrific. The first real, real big records. I think I played on.
1: I saw this. His. I saw this video. It might have popped up from Will Lee. He might have posted it actually, and it's because uh, I saw. Uh, Donald Fagan, Asia, and I look, and there's Will Lee. I can see him playing bass. And I look over on the left, and you're playing keyboards with, with Donald Fagan doing Asia. And 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 um good Lord, uh, this, and and that was with um he was actually doing the drums. Uh
2: Steve Gadd, yes. Steve
1: Gadd, yeah.
2: I know the great who played the Asia solo. Oh, I well, know. Well this is a thing from Will. Will uh year after year has been the a conductor on uh, this charity show uh, called uh, Love Rocks. Now, okay. for a, for an organization, uh, God's Love We Deliver, they bring food to invalids and people. You know, a wonderful charity. A huge rock show at the Beacon, and Willie with a big band. And I did it for three years. But tr- truthfully, there's so much music, and so you know, I, I I I demoted myself. I did a little hosting and. Sitting in a little bit the last time, but Will, you know, just three, four solid hours of all these stars. And his band is all-star too. Complimented me by having me on one keyboard, but his other keyboard player was great. Jeff Young. Oh, somebody, wait a minute. And decline. Yeah, you gotta get a... I, somehow you gotta put it on airplane mode. I know, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but what was I saying? Will has this super band with Steve Gadd and the great Sean Pelton, two terrific drummers. Greatest I've ever heard two drummers playing together because that can be a mess. Yeah, I'm sure you know. And this one year, it was the kick drums are out of sync. It sounds like hell. But these two guys were listening to each other, they weren't duplicating each other. And it was really terrific. And that Asia was, yeah, was a high point because Gad played that incredible solo almost no for no.
1: I don't know if you recall, but when we did the Roseland Ballroom with Bachman and Turner, I think yeah. when, I, when I did my segment with you, I was on guitar, but I used to double on an 8-string bass, and Fred would play bass, and I'd be playing 8-string. It was like Big Bottom all of a sudden, you know? Yes, it was. A, I see. And, and But that was the thing, is that a lot of times I would hold the 8th notes, the dun-dun-dun stuff, while Fred yeah. was able to wander if he wanted to, and literally the sound man could mix or match whatever bass he wanted to use.
2: Yeah, well, you guess. I guess you part of what gave him that monstrous sound. (laughs) Now you're giving away all the secrets. (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm writing it down. Eight-string bass. Of course, you know the the great Phil Spector. Yeah, one of your controversial character, of course, and uh, died in jail. Yeah, but one of his groundbreaking things was that you know the two basses. One he would use one upright. and one electric. Well, and, um, and sometimes a six string, you know, an octave higher, too. I got I got it.
1: OK, so you moved to Toronto and you start working on Godspell. This is where you meet the, the people that become the uh, not ready for primetime players, which becomes Saturday Night Live.
2: Yeah, well, a number. And How them.
1: did you get the actual you now, You got the the band gig. Um, what was his name? Howard Shore was the, the band leader. He, for Saturday he was Live, the right? band leader. And he was doctor. from Lighthouse.
2: That's right. He was yeah. from Lighthouse.
1: The bad Lighthouse uh, for, you know, Canadian band. Yeah.
2: Now, of course, you know, the, the crowd that, I, uh, uh, Godspell, the, the crowd of, of actors that I met, uh, Gilda Radner went on to the uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, primet- not ready for primetime players. Right. Dan Aykroyd, too. He hadn't been in Godspell. But uh, they became uh, the Second City nightclub performers. Right. and. And then um, they had, uh, which became SCTV. Yeah. That wonderful show. Yeah, amazing. Uh, all, and yeah. on the same album.
0: I won't take just any girl around. Because Patsy has the largest press in town.
2: Yes, Patsy has the largest press uh, in yeah. town. Uh, all done in Canada with Canadians. Um, and then, uh, But I... Was in New York. Uh, I had been brought into town by the composer of Godspell, Steve Schwartz, who liked the way I played the stuff in Toronto and got me my first permit to come to the U.S. And I, I was playing on Broadway for him in the magic show, coincidentally with the Canadian magician, Doug Henning. Doug Henning? Yeah, this was his Broadway debut and it was a smash. He was a, music, a magician, not not like the old-fashioned guy with the top hat and cape, but you know, a hippie guy with a mustache and yeah. and a jumpsuit, and it was all very '70s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but before I left Toronto, I did one more show. I had, I was in theater after I did Gospel. I got some other calls, do some shows, and I met Howard Shore, straight out of Lighthouse, starting to do you know gigs here and there, and and he and I hit it off. And so when he came down to do, put the band together for SNL, he called me up. I was already in town doing Doug Henning's show and I, I switched over and that's how that happened. Well, so I was, I was never the lead band leader or musical director. He was, I was just going to say that. And a lot of people think you were the musical
1: director, but you weren't. Well, I guess I was because al- you, were, you were more visible or something. You had yes, to blast- I
2: made myself a little visible. Yeah. Uh, and Howard was doing the opposite. he, he really didn't want to, uh, you know, be the stereotypical conductor. We were all trying to break these old-fashioned Chauvis stereotypes, and he didn't want to be a stereotypical conductor like Benny Goodman out front of the band or something. Right. He was trying everything. Once he even had brought an antique desk, and while we were playing, he'd be sort of sitting at the desk. And anything not to be, you know. Well. And I was the opposite, and I loved Elton John so much that I... I had a pair of glasses just like his right. and I used to wear his trademark which I don't know you shouldn't really do that but it worked <laughs> for me too and it was just a tribute to Elton. Well but didn't you actually sometimes you would you'd see those white glasses in a shot sometimes.
1: Didn't you actually have a pair of glasses that were made by the same manufacturer as
2: him? Well, as he asked again a long story but you know when I started mentioning Don Kirshner, I did a TV pilot and in fact a summer series for him. Uh, and that's why I started doing an impression of him that I used to do on Saturday Night Live, when I came back to that show. But while in Hollywood doing this crazy sitcom, kind of a monkey thing, a, a show about a band, they said, "Well, you need some flashy glasses for the musical number at the end. Let's go down, you know, on Sunset where Elton gets his glasses," which and the place was called Optique Boutique. Okay. The year nineteen seventy-seven, and uh, the woman actually said, "I've got Elton's next pair. Would you like to see them?" Well, of course. And she brought out those iconic square ones with lenses this thick. You know, okay. his 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 lenses. And I said, "I'll you know I'll take a pair of those," and and it was that simple. I'm not I'm proud really- of it. It was his. It was his. You know, I don't know what what you could liken it to, but. Uh, well, but he was doing Liberace. You know, everybody borrows from everybody, right? Thanks for putting it that way. It's true. <laughs> yeah, It's actually true. But what a what a musician he is. Underrated.
1: Oh, unbelievable. He's, he's a great, great piano. That's what Billy Joel said. He said the one thing people don't realize
2: is how great a piano player Elton John actually is. Yeah, he sure is. And he, and he and loves to so play. He's so advanced. And he was very into gospel and... Uh, gospel rock and gospel real early, you know, in the late 60s, 60s, when that, when that first record came out, may not have been his actual first, but the one with your song. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. playing his ass off in a gospel kind of frame of mind that nobody else was doing. Maybe Leon Russell, and he does... Sight Leon is a big influence. Do you remember Doug Edwards? You're familiar with the name. He's the guy that wrote
1: "Wildflower" for Skylark. You know David Foster. Oh, I first know the band? song.
2: I know the yeah, song yeah, a beautiful very well. song. Yeah, and I but don't know who Doug Edwards is. Is he was he in the band? Yes, he was the bass player that wrote it. Yeah.
1: Okay. It, it was actually him and a, a police officer from Victoria here who wrote I the see. lyrics. And he gave the lyrics uh, to Doug. Doug wrote the music. Presented it to the band, David Foster's first big production, and it's gone on. It still gets airplayed. You know, one of it those sure classic does. songs. Amazing. But anyway, Doug Doug Edwards was at the Troubadour when Elton played. He said ah. it was the best the best rock trio he's ever seen in his life. He couldn't believe how good it
2: was. That was before they had a guitar player. I'm sure it was. I mean, not, I mean history. I was listening just coincidentally. I guess maybe there was an anniversary of that album or the live album that they cut at a studio in New York after that, but it was their act, just the three of them. And yeah, they're just playing, you know, with all the youthful energy where you're, you you've got 250% to give and they're, and they're, and they're giving it and they're singing. The keys are in the stratosphere. They're so young and singing so high. Yeah. All yeah. Of them, the background vocals too, you know, they were high. Yeah. Even yeah. Well, I, mean, I remember uh,
1: seeing Elton John talking about because he was such a Leon Russell fan, and of course yeah. there, there he is at the Troubadour doing his big debut in Hollywood, and he looks out in the crowd and there's Leon Russell. And he he didn't know what to do. He was just he was just in shock, and it'd be like me playing in a club because the Troubadour is so tiny, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'd be like me playing in a small club and seeing Paul McCartney in front of me or something, you know, I would I don't know how I'd open my mouth, you know.
2: I know it, it is amazing that, uh, that that he got to do that. Yeah. And and when that happens, I don't know. I've had some surreal moment. You know, I'm just kind of get, getting taken back to getting to play. You know, and, and Ray Charles is right in the room. You know. No kidding. Way like, back in the well, well, way back when he hosted um, SNL. Ray yeah. Charles hosted SNL in the seventies. Yeah. And uh, we, the house band played with him on a couple of numbers and he really, you know, somehow I was in the position of having to play soul, soul organ licks behind Ray Charles and I was scared to death, you know. Oh, wow. And he stopped the whole band and he said, organ. He called me organ, you know, and he said, play it with some soul. And I'm saying, oh my God, you know what? Somehow I got through that and he, you know, by the end of it, he really was nice to me. But man, what a, imagine that being put on that kind of spot
1: i heard notoriously that he really felt behind the beat like he was a real like like he could like he could have a song playing so slow and he didn't want you to vary from that it'd be so slow it was almost abnormal but it was cooking out front but you know in the band it's so hard to feel that slow and have energy you know
2: well, uh, certainly that's true. And I'll also tell you that I, because after that initial time, I got to play with him a number of times. A wonderful special in New Orleans called Fats and Friends with him, Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, and then he did let him in a few times. Yeah. And I don't remember who it was who told me simply the secret. Maybe it was back on Saturday Night Live. Make sure the drummer can see his feet. It's as simple as that because he will change the tempo too, but he is dictating what he wants with his feet, you know, left, hand, left foot being the snare, boom, ah. boom, boom. And, if, you know, if he'll, he may want to raise the tempo on the bridge. He wow. might not realize it himself, you know, and then he'd accuse the drummer, you're dragging, man, you're dragging, you know, because he, but just watch his feet was the whole secret of playing with Rachel. So he was conducting with his feet. That was his baton. Yes. Amazing. And, and that's right. And he would change the tempo that way too. Wow. And some you of gotta... them were, we, just like you said, so slow. that uh, the time he came come over, you know, but the only way to do it is if the drummer could see his feet. Yeah. Wow. That's And really I've had, I remember, you know, at um, Letterman time once when we were in Los Angeles, he did it. And we had to just stop, you know, and I hold it, you know, I, I, the drum, the piano's in the wrong place. The drummer's got to see. Well, we want the lighting. to say no, and I'm telling you, you can't. It's not the lighting. He won't. We won't be able to play with him. You gotta. We unless we have. You know, and I had to do that. And eventually, I got them to move the piano around.
1: That's. True. I got. I got to talk You're still really good friends with Bill Murray. You must be. Yes. Because you guys. I mean, those. Those. What was it? Nick Rails or Nick? Uh, what was the character? Well, he, was, he was, was always Nick, the lounge
2: singer. That was the best was, skit yeah. ever. He was Nick, whoever was was appropriate, whether, whether it was Nick Rails on the train, bar, car, <laughs> yeah. or Nick's, Nick's, Nick Winters up in the ski resort, you know. And <laughs> uh, and I was a part of a team of about five writers who would put these things together, with, led by him, of course, just coming up with stuff. Danny was always um, a guy who worked on the, you know, at the ski lodge who found a dead animal in the, uh, in the ski lift, you know, in the motor. And he, that was every year that was the same. I mean, every episode, Um, but the main thing was the songs, like when he did star Wars and stuff, Yeah. that was just all bill, whatever he wanted to do, he would get a crazy idea. He did the best.
1: Mark Kerner stuff, but what I found remarkable, I was listening to your most dangerous band album. Yeah. And he's, he does a vocal on there. That's really good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he loves music and even more impressive than that is he, he's been doing a thing while well, nobody's doing any concerts anymore, but before the quarantine, he had a sort of a semi-classical evening. He teamed up with a classical cellist. And they had a cello and two uh, there's two uh, violin viola I think and and pianist and he was doing classical pieces and and some you know crossover a little bit of pop but with a very classical attitude and only he you know and pulling it off wow. pulling it off well he's he's notoriously hard to get a hold of apparently just like yes. Here. He's
1: one of these evasive kind of guys. Like, it's amazing he's still a star almost, because it's hard to
2: find him sometimes. It sure does speak to how how talented he is, because I've, I've heard this. Well, the same thing, you know. Even those of us who, who have his number don't really have it. Uh, but apparently, you know, the, his big uh, Oscar-nominated role with uh, Sofia Coppola... Um, she couldn't get him. She couldn't find him for you know, a whole year, I think, wow. and almost gave up. And then managed, somebody managed to put him. But that, you know, was, was such a big success. Well, uh, what
1: do you attribute to that? Knowing that You know
2: him well just gotta enough. Just got to be huh? his own man. You got to be his own man. That's all. Uh, got to live his own life.
1: Wow. Rob Reiner d- directed it, but who came up with the, the concept of Spinal Tap? You, um,
2: uh, you know, I, I can only say that, um, as far as I know, the three guys in, in, the, in it, who were the three leads in it, Mike McKeon,
1: yeah.
2: uh, Christopher guest and Harry Shearer, yeah. excuse me, and Rob Reiner, the director. Right. All four of them great pals anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, known each other in Hollywood for years. Harry and McKeon were in a comedy group that made records called The Credibility Gap, um, and Chris, uh, you know, one of the funniest guys, I don't know what else to say, but uh, somehow, in sitting around, they, the four of them developed this thing, and they always used to say, Rob became the director because he couldn't fit into the spandex pants. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, he would have been in it, and they all, you know, they were all sort of co-creators of it.
1: And your part, uh, your Artie Fufkin was just such an iconic part. Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously based on several people. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> you know, you exactly. can't really name one of them, but you can kind of, <laughs> you know. It was, well, it was, when I said, Harry was really the one who got me into it, uh, into the movie. Harry, had, uh, was, it was just after the time when Harry had done one of his, one of his stints on SNL, and he, he and I became fast friends. He talked them into using me as a promo man. And when I said to him, well, so you'll send me my lines? And he said, well, you'll be making them up. And sure enough, it was like that. There were only scene outlines, no script, no lines. Just we knew you had to get from point A to point B, go, you know? And then you'd kind of be saying things. Not true improv because sometimes people would plan the night before what they were gonna say.
1: People almost like,
2: breaking up. Yeah, almost like Larry David's show. You know, it was exactly like that. And, and, you know, it set the mold, I think, for these, those kind of shows, yeah. but yeah, it gives it a weird kind of real feeling uh, to it. And so I was, uh, I had to do that too, and come up with backstories. First of all, I had to learn who everybody was, all the names of their characters, which wasn't easy. And then the people at the label, Sir Dennis, somebody or other, you know, and yeah. And then uh, I had to just talk. And as far as an actor, I really could only do the one thing—that impression of Don Kirshner that I no, that I picked up from. I was, was going to say that. I was trying not to say. It. Well, it's all I could do, you know. So I did that voice as if he were a promo man, and then from real promo guys, I filled in some of the authentic, yeah, you know, terminology. Yeah, and I had he's a, a buff character. For all of that stuff, and that was so big at the time.
1: Yeah, 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 unbelievable. No, those guys actually did play too. Yes, they did play. Yeah, I'm and very Harry Sure. Harry Sure, of course, has gone on to Simpsons. Has been such a huge hit for him. He's done, does so many voices.
2: My gosh, does all the voices that aren't the family members. Yeah, and he spends a lot of time in New Orleans now, uh, Harry, where he has a a, a place and. He's become a sort of a New Orleans musical guru. Really? I'm not sure how it happened, but he has more knowledge about the, the, the New Orleans scene all of a sudden than, than almost anybody else.
1: I've been to New Orleans a couple of times, and my greatest success on seeing authentic music was always during the day. At night, well, at mm. night I might as well have been in downtown Vancouver, you know? Uh-huh. But, because it was the same. You go in and you see these rock bands playing cover material you weren't seeing what I wanted to see in the afternoons that's when afternoon you saw the real guys come out you know even the
2: street entertainment was amazing that's right and it seems like everybody can play a great New Orleans piano there yeah. no matter who it is <laughs> well I you know. That's- that's that's like that's like the old line in Nashville. It's like you're in a
1: coffee shop and somebody says and the waitress walks up, "Yeah, can I get you a refill on your coffee and you want some help with your third verse?" <laughs> exactly. Yeah. everybody's in the music business in Nashville, you
2: know. It was just like that. Sure yeah.
1: is true. Unbelievable. So, okay, so now where's where's the bridge happened between Saturday Night Live and all the thing, and you were doing skits on Saturday Night Live and stuff. You became much more than just a musician
2: on that show. You became part of the troupe. By the fifth season, I was what they called a, 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 a featured player, which is like a supporting actor. You get to be, you know, in a certain number of episodes. And I don't know. I I certainly wanted to get on camera, and um, I must give it up to the guys in, in, and gals in Godspell. Mm -hmm. back in toronto in 1972 my first experience of a group of people that were so funny that i said to myself i want to be more like them yeah they seem to be having more fun than i am yeah just and i don't know they just that influence you know certainly did just rub off on me
1: well like and you touched on it the godspell thing basically spawned saturday night live and sctv and sctv i know unbelievable what i think so too
2: What comedic geniuses. And this guy, um, Stephen Schwartz, who who, who now, well, I say, again, before the quarantine, Wicked was, is his show. Maybe the longest running show on Broadway now, I think. But at the time. Oh, wow. Him, yeah, but at the time he was 24 or, or five. And he came up to Toronto to do those final auditions and just picked all these incredible people And hired me. I was there to accompany a couple of uh, people who were auditioning. And he said, yeah, I like that. You know, let me talk to that piano player. And by the end of the day, he had hired me for the show. Mm. I don't know how, you know, how blessing. It's all I can say, a blessing. And and Gilda just seemed
1: like everybody's sweetheart. Everybody, nobody has a bad thing to say about Gilda Radner.
2: That's right. And nor did she ever do a, a single thing. It yeah. was anything but sterling and beautiful. She was a lovely yeah. friend, yeah, and, and a loyal friend to the end. Did you uh, did
1: you get did you get to know Gene Wilder well? I imagine you must have.
2: No, because um, when she started going with Gene, uh, he sort of um, and maybe for her own good, you know, kind of, kind of took her out of the old uh, scene, uh, which uh, may not have been doing her. You know, she was drinking tab and too many tabs and sometimes pouring vodka in and stuff. And, <laughs> okay. and, uh, a lot of us didn't see her for a while. Okay. Um, uh, and I, again, I think, you know, yeah. it was what she needed at the time.
1: Yeah. Well, look what happened to Belushi, you know, that was, I know it was, it was pretty tragic. What was going on. Luckily, I don't think Aykroyd had, had the same sort of internal like what it, a pension or whatever you call it to to move in that
2: direction. Belushi was all in all the time. You could just tell. Well, he sure was, and that's you know, it's a, it's such a sad ending and too early. But man, those you know the the stars are uh, are certainly all in. We we learned that, and hopefully they learn to take care of themselves too.
1: Well, that brings me to the Blues Brothers. Now, in the Blues Brothers. You you guys started that on Saturday Night Live as a skit, correct?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say was, they got on, first of all, they started, you know, they were both, they had both been in bands in high school. Belushi, I think, is a drummer uh, where he grew up outside of uh, Chicago and, and Akron playing the blues harp. Um, in uh, uh, Hal Quebec, or wherever it was exactly he's from. I can't quite remember, but the Downchild Blues Band being a huge influence on him. Okay. And I think he was always kind of maybe had this idea that he and John, John could sing pretty well and I can play this harp and maybe, you know, things developed. Hey, we could put on, um, you know, shades and and hats and be like the old junkies that... uh, you heard about back in Chicago, who tried to look so straight, you know, they were wearing sh- straight hats and suits, but they were so obvious, they were giving themselves away. Yeah. And that was part of it. And they started doing this to warm up the audience on SNL, like which was going to go on the air at 1130. So at 1115, you know, the announcer, Hey, how's everybody feel, you know, feel like some blues. Here's, you know, and introduce them. And they would just come, just for the studio audience, come out and do a few songs. Wow. And then they did it on TV. They figured out well, if we dress up like the running gag at the time, which was people dressing as bees, bumblebees. Yeah, bees. And that's right, and, because
1: they, they, I remember that and, was just going to bring that up. I I thought I remember them doing some music
2: like that dressed as and bees. And they did I'm a King Bee Baby. You know, I think that was this right. idea. Dressed as bees. And that's how they got on the camera. And like that, they got uh, signed to Atlantic Records. Wow. And, that, and away they went. And... They ca- hired me uh, to put the band together for them. And that first album was great. It, yeah, was, it was unstoppable. Off. The guys were hot as hell, of course, from Saturday Night Live. And talented as, as all heck. Oh. And like, El- like we were saying about Elton and his band, just at that you know peak time when they're giving their all. And, they, and everybody wanted to play for them. We could have had absolutely any anyway. Oh, yeah. Donald Duck yeah. Dunn and uh, Oh, God. Who who else was in that band? And, so, and Steve Cropper, of Steve course. Steve Cropper, and, of course, yeah. Um, and Matt Guitar Murphy, a wonderful uh, you know, Chicago-style blues player, but who had it was played such with a, the
1: greats. It was such a renaissance for them, too. Of course they'd want to be part of it. I didn't realize it at the time.
2: Yeah, but yeah. Yes, but yes, it did. It did yeah. kind of bring them back. A renaissance for them.
1: And that yeah. was... Yeah, that that album, and you know what, uh, Belushi, uh, pardon me, Dan Ackroyd's Rubber Biscuit always blew my mind, that, I don't know how he did that phonetic sound, man, was that incredible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you want for nothing? Rubber Biscuit?
2: showed off, you know, finding that song, being aware of it, being able to do it. How do you do do that? Well, I can't do it. I can't even do it at half half the speed. A
1: friend of mine, a country artist a friend of mine is a country artist up here. He does it really, really well. He he nails it. He actually studied it phonetically. It's almost, he says, I had to
2: study it like it was another language. Well, I hope that we were right about, we were doing it phonetically too. Danny yeah. and you know, and I was kind of around too, and uh, we some of the phrases we feel started with the syllable Z-U-L Zul. Zul Ask your friend if, there, if, if, if there's any than yeah. a I think there are
1: have to. I haven't talked to him for a while, he moved a to Banff, so. um, oh, I for I him for a while.
2: He moved to little So.
1: of a little was of um, uh, a and, and yeah, and
2: he can play. He yeah. Was, yeah. he can play. And yeah, that first album. And this is before there was any such thing as auto-tune. Yeah. Or or digital, you know. Yeah. This was a 24-track tape. Yeah. Um, cutting That's... it. Cutting between nights. I think we had nine nights at the Universal Amphitheater live. Opening for Steve Martin. By his graces, he said, you know, you guys can open, Sure. Wow. And they, you know, and they really stepped up with this An incredible band. And then uh, what you heard was absolutely what everybody was playing. And, yes. and Steve and Steve Martin was filling stadiums in those
1: days. You know, he was so huge.
2: Yeah, so he he filled nine nights uh, in Hollywood. I mean, nobody knew that the Blues Brothers would you know would would score like they did. But that's why they recorded that first album.
1: Really. So that was oh, wow! I didn't know. live album. Yes, live album. I didn't know the that truck, it was no, yeah. but I didn't realize it was backing up Steve Martin. It was opening for him. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So uh, I got okay. So okay. So we got Godspell. We got. I'm trying to bridge where you go from Saturday Night Live to David Letterman, where like because Letterman started with an a,
2: an afternoon talk show that didn't spin. Were you part of that? It was, it was in the morning, actually. Oh, morning, yeah. And it was the very definition of too hip for the room, I think, it was live in the morning. Um, and it was the first year after I had left SNL. I had done the first five years uh, on piano, and then a little bit of performing and such, writing. Uh, and then everybody was just leaving. You know, Lorne Michaels, the producer, was leaving. He eventually came back and, you know, and is still doing it today. But at the time he left for a while and everyone left, all his people left with him. And I left, too. I wasn't going to stay and start again with a new group, you know, and I was just doing uh, freelance stuff, studio work and such. Uh, And when that morning show, David Lerner, I did get called for it. And David likes to make a running gag out of it himself, he used to say on the show. Now, Paul, you didn't do the morning show, right? No, David. Why not? Couldn't get up that early. <laughs> but really, I think it was just, you know, having done five years, I, it just didn't seem right. And the morning, you know, I didn't see it. And maybe I was right in that they were just so clever and inventive and it was too much for that hour of the morning. Mm. But somehow, lucky for me, uh, the network still had... Faith in Dave. And the next thing they gave him a, a show in the in the evening, even later than Johnny Carson, was going to come on at 1230 at night. Yeah. And and somehow they called me again. And I said, well, that, you know, that's more like uh, well, even even later than Johnny Carson. Sign me up. And, I, yeah. and so, I, so I did. Well, Carson used to do not
1: many people remember this. He used to do a 90 minute show every night. It wasn't yeah. an hour. It was 90 minutes. So when he, yeah. I guess I'm assuming when he cut back to an hour, all he had to do was basically was take that additional 30 minutes that he gave up, add another 30 minutes, and they have two shows now.
2: I guess, yeah. Well, first, first, a guy named Tom Snyder would come on. Right. Oh, right, of course, of course. Smoking uh, heavily, oh, yeah. smoke, and, and of very course- intimate, all dark, and just a yeah. one-on-one for an hour, and then... Letterman replaced uh, replaced him with our show. And, of course,
1: aqua did a great Tom Snyder, too. <laughs> he sure him.
2: did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: Oh, man. Oh, I, lo- I used to love the Tom Snyder show. I forgot all about that. That was on first. That's right. But that was on at, like, well, let's see, if Carson went on at 11.30, so, yeah. He, he was on coming
2: on at 12.30. No, I think it was when we- he went to an hour. That's when Tom Snyder started. I don't know. It's so ancient history now. I know. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I know. We're going a long way back. So anyway,
1: so, so now how do you get the call to do, you get the call to do the, the band with David. Was that David's choice at that point? Or was that uh, NBC or
2: no David, he, he, uh, you know, in both cases, he, he asked them to call me, come in for a meeting. Um, and how did he know about you? Uh, he he mentioned that he had seen me on Saturday Night Live, and in, in fact mentioned those Bill Murray, lounge singer sketches that wow. he had noticed me in those and stuff. And um, and of course, he says,
1: and he loves Bill Murray too. I mean, that's his he first sure guest. Does. Yeah, that's his first guest on everything.
2: You know, that's right. It was yeah. <laughs> so that's what he said. You know, he just had an idea that I would be right for it, and he claims he never had anybody else in mind. I don't know if that's true or not.
1: Well, that's nice. I got Excuse me. me. And you guys
2: continue to have a good relationship to this day. Yep. David and I still speak quite a bit. Did you not write write the theme for his new show as well? That's right. It was so nice of him. He asked me to write the theme for the show he does on Netflix now. Yeah, which I love. Uh, Yes, it's a hell of a show. And, um some of them have been quite incredible uh, because it's all one, sort of like Tom Snyder-esque, one except in front of an audience, and then they go out and do things Mm -hmm. in the field that relate to the interview and stuff. They illustrate stuff and they show you stuff. I remember him
1: talking to Jerry Seinfeld about being jealous about comedians in cars
2: drinking coffee or whatever. Okay, that's right. You You seem to follow this stuff a little bit. Oh,
1: I'm a comedy groupie. Absolutely. I,
2: I see that. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. He did
1: like that. Yeah, you know, so I- he... And, and I think what he liked about it, and of course... Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee was very, very early. The podcast were just starting where people would do an interview like this where you're talking about life and going on and on. And that was the thing. They would get, He would pick them up in a car, and they'd sit around and yak about stuff and make a show out of it. And I remember David saying that was so great because on a TV show, you've got your, what, five minutes for your guest. You've got to crunch it all in. You've got your blue card telling you what to say, what to ask. You're not really getting an intimate conversation. And yeah. so he was trying to figure a way to get – to do what Jerry was doing, and that's why the Netflix thing, I'm sure, appealed to him. Absolutely right.
2: Yeah. Well, you know all this stuff. You don't need me to, to answer this <laughs> you. you seem to know it all. You do. <laughs> quite, quite impressive. Well, oh, thanks. I, um, I, I
1: don't want to step on your toes, but e- Eugene Levy, going back to that, you were
2: guest on Schitt's Creek, too. That's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm told I was the only... The, the show's, uh, you know, they're done now. They've had yeah. seven seven or eight wonderfully successful episodes. But apparently I'm the only one who appeared on the show and played myself in the in the whole series. Is that right? Yeah, so that's a sort of an accomplishment, I think.
1: You must have been so proud of Eugene for winning all those
2: Emmys, man. And his son, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, who, what a talent. Who runs the show, you know, yeah. now. Especially just, when I, I noticed that he's going to host... Saturday Night Live, Daniel Levy. Oh, and good. W- what a fantastic thing that is. Yeah. And when we think back to when he was born and stuff.
1: Yeah, full circle, huh?
2: Yeah. Full That's circle. pretty nice. Very nice.
1: Unbelievable. So, okay, so let's let's go post Letterman now. So post Letterman, you do your, you get a you got a record deal of all things, and you do that that album, The World's Most Dangerous Band, the album. Yes, it's sort of on a, on it.
2: so, yeah, it's a sort of a goodbye to uh, my old band from all of us. Years on Letterman, uh, that band recording together, and yeah, guest stars um, like Dion, one, one of my favorites, Dion DeMucci, the Wanderer. Yeah. And I can can barely remember who else. Yeah, there's, uh, there's
1: there's quite a there's quite a few guest stars no, on there, but the ones the one the one that really rocked my world was Bill Murray, just because he got to be the personification of what he was. Caricaturizing back in Saturday Night Live, he actually became a singer on that album. To me.
2: Well, like, yeah, that, I suppose that's true. Yeah, and nice of you to put it that way. I think he was happy with his work on it too. took I it seriously so. worked hard. You know, we yeah, went yeah. down to to uh, to uh, in South Carolina where he was at the time and recorded him down there.
0: Is that, that.
1: right? Eh? Oh, that's, yeah, that's so great. That's awesome.
0: So, obviously, with what's happened with COVID and all that, life is sort of quieted down quite a bit for the entertainment industry and all that. But what have you been working on during all this time?
2: Well, uh, you know, not too much at, because there isn't too much going on. Um, I was just getting into a new face uh, symphony work. I had done my first symphony show uh, with the um, uh, Michigan. Um, the symphony in, uh, I'm blanking now, but it's in Michigan, a wonderful orchestra, uh, where they have the Gibson factory and the Kellogg's factory. Where is it, where they have Kellogg's?
1: Oh, Battle Creek.
2: Yeah, no, oh, you're right, Battle Creek. This is near Battle Creek. Uh, Kellogg's is one of their sponsors. Anyway, a wonderful show where I got to do all my favorite symphonic-esque type of pop and R&B. And I I had bookings, I was gonna play uh winnipeg as a matter of fact i was talking to the vancouver symphony i had long beach going you know and i'm very much looking forward to that wow. and hope you know don't know how it's going to happen that you know that there might be symphonic shows because when you've got a full they had 70 70 pieces almost 70 pieces up in in michigan that's already your covid you know you're uh, you're in trouble. So, I don't yeah. know how that's going to happen. Otherwise, I'm getting, I'm practicing the piano and I'm trying to stay ready. What and about,
1: uh, what, about your, what about your Paul Schaefer Plus One show? Because I yes. love that. that, that well, thank that's, you. You, that's you doing what Letterman's doing. You're taking a musician and you're talking songs,
2: you're, you're yeah. talking music. Uh, basically, what happened was I did about n- nine of them. I'm very proud of them. Not, not only Don, I, did I do Donald Fagan, just the two of us. Talking and playing, uh, but Smokey Robinson did an episode where you know talk, yeah. you're talking about my favorite. You know Joe Walsh. My goodness, yeah, yeah. Uh, wonderful people. Billy and Gibbons, then the, and then the yeah Billy Gibbons, terrific. And the network changed hands. Somebody else bought it. Oh no! And they said we got too many interview shows, and that was the end of that. Oh. I said, but no. but but mine is but mine is more of a you know. Anyway, the, is that's what happened. I'm still holding my hopes up that I might be able to do it somewhere else. Um, Maybe, I I mean, I certainly went inside. I didn't care. You know, I asked very musical questions uh, that I'm glad that you liked, but I could see where, you know, an average viewer might say, well, what what is he talking? He's lost me now, you
1: know. We'll we'll, we'll talk off camera. We might have an idea for you. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah, okay. But I was gonna say, I, I have to ask this. Uh, one of, one of our, our guys on our show, uh, Dave, David, he's not with us today because he has another shoot he has to do. But he is a rush freak. And, of course, okay. he, and he said that there was drumming week when Neil Peart came on and yeah. closed the show. And he, yeah. he wanted me to ask, what, what was that like and what's your experiences with Neil Peart? Peart?
2: Well, um, I, don't, I don't think I had met him before that time. Um, my son, who's now at uh, 22 and uh, he's a fourth year student at uh, UPenn, so wow. proud of him. Wow. But at the time he was in high school and he was drumming. He was a drummer okay. and he was into classic rock. He, he took, uh, there actually is an organization called School of Rock, yeah. which was fantastic. He took drum lessons. They taught him how to read. Uh, and they taught him the classical, you know, what was what in the, in the in the world of classic rock. And they said, you know, you should if you have an opportunity to catch Neil Purd, you better catch it. By the way, is it Perch? I, is it Peart? I, I I know I always thought it was Purd, but I've heard people
1: say Purd, so Peart. I was trying. It's maybe Peart. in Canada.
2: Yeah, it is. In Canada, it is Peart. Peart, where, yeah. Peart. where Peart. they know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that I, is what I said. Uh, anyway, so my son came down. With and maybe he'll get a chance to meet him, but but the the vibe was I mean Rush I guess so massive that we got sort of their standard rider and it says you don't talk to Neil, you don't interfere with him, let him do his thing, you know, and nobody gets to meet him. So I said, well, you know, well, okay, on the Letterman show, yeah, yeah, this, this is what it was like. Uh, as I say, probably their standard rider. Right. Uh, but whatever it was, my son and I waited patiently while he went through t- uh, a couple of times his solo. And he was using, you know, a regular kit, uh, very expansive, of course, and then an electric kit behind him. Would, and the, the whole thing would spin around. He brought all of this, right. I guess, from the rush setup. Right. And we watched and, you know, and he got it down. He was, you know, he was so concentrated. And as soon as they broke, he came right over to me and my son. And he sat down with us, and he just gave us as much time as uh, as he as we needed, you know. So my my son never, you know, never more impressed than that. And yeah. So he was a terrific guy, and and so respected among the international drumming community. One of the greats, obviously. And so
1: what you said, your son was four four years. What what is he taking? What's his major? He 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 he
2: pre med. he, He hopes to.
1: Wow. get into medicine
2: and i say where did i go wrong <laughs> I, want, I want him to be a degenerate jazz musician like his old man and well what, uh, about your, what about your daughter she's the older one correct yeah i mean victoria living in hollywood and uh, very much uh uh into a uh, dog rescue and sheltering
0: she really? is great
2: yes working with an uh, organization called mutt scouts where they shelter dogs they find wounded animals litters and What's the name of that? Get them adopted. Much 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 like like a, like a M- 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 MUTT. Much t- yeah.
1: I will tell you why cuz we just rescued a dog from Mexico. We just we just got Jenny uh on December 19th and I'm always looking to find out how to deal with to this. she's a wonderful beautiful little dog but there's little idiosyncrasies that I'm trying to figure out how to get around, you know.
2: My daughter's an expert now. She can advise you. Well, that's and that's that's what much got a lot of adopting from Mexico. Actually, a lot of fostering, I should say, rescuing, yeah. fostering, and then, and yeah. then adopting. Well,
1: that's that's what it is. We we fostered Jenny for a month, and we finally mm. she became ours about a week ago.
2: So, Good for you. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah I love
1: congratulations. It. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's great. I have to look that up.
0: Um, I'm just curious, how did you come to be featured on The Simpsons? I saw there was one episode in particular that I know they they said it was the birthplace of Paul Schaefer it was Toronto when it's really Thunder Bay, but nevertheless, they featured you on the show. So I was curious.
2: Well, first of all, I've got to say that they were right. I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto.
0: Oh, right on, okay.
2: Yes, and, and then just, I was in Toronto just to get born and then, <laughs> and then ra- raised in Thunder Bay. But you know, on my birth certificate, it does say Toronto. Okay. Um, and I don't know how the rest of it happened. Uh, exactly all i know is that uh well uh, i guess, so many things we had to do something it, it had to do with their couch moment i think the, at the beginning they, they always have a running thing everybody ends up on the couch and maybe that's all i can remember <laughs> well, randy and fred had their
1: moment with the simpsons too which was great they're, they're oh, I'm event. sure. Well, they're icons. they icons. Yeah, they're playing a festival with BTL, mm-hmm. and and Homer's out in the audience yelling, "No new crap! Taking care of business now!" <laughs> 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 which which is what you hear everywhere. Story of your
2: life, I'm sure. Being absolutely. 20, absolutely twenty years
1: twenty years of that, my friend. I I probably be uh, I should probably mention your book.
2: Well, That's nice of you. Yeah, this, this book we'll be here for the a, rest
1: of our lives.
2: Yeah, I read it about 10 years ago. Yeah. At least, but, it, but certainly it's still downloadable and stuff. And um, uh, very much an honest uh, account of growing up in Thunder Bay, seeing the guess who, uh, you know, becoming, uh, tuning into American radio stations after dark and, and then and moving through all the stuff we we just talked about how you don't have to write you don't have to download the book we just talked about everything
1: well paul thank you very much for your time i know you have to run this is absolutely incredible but um i'm going to i i'll write you through olivia yes um because there's something i want to talk to you about regarding your show okay
2: wonderful great all righty it was a pleasure being with you and all the guys hi everybody and bye yeah. thank, and you, thanks so
0: much.
2: Me thank you so much
0: Paul we'd love to have you back it's been a fantastic show thank Take you care. hey thanks for joining us check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders and please like share and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing available both on podcast and video on demand